All right, well, we're there in Isaiah uh, chapter 59, and tonight I, I, I don't have like an outline for you or anything like that. We're just going to read the chapter and make application as we go along, just kind of learn a few things, and then we'll have some fellowship after the service. If you look at verse 1 there, Isaiah 59, and verse number 1, the Bible says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. So Isaiah is beginning to talk about the fact that uh, it's not that God can't save you. It's not that his arm is, not, is shortened, that he can't reach you or you are out of his reach. Or it's not that he, he's growing old and he can't hear you and, and, and he cannot hear your pleas. Uh, the, the problem is not God. In, in verse 2 he says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And the idea is this, that sin separates us from God. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 59. That's our text for tonight. But go with me to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Uh, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and then the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 2. And when you get to Ephesians, put your uh, bulletin or a ribbon or a bookmark or something there in Ephesians because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. I'm a mess tonight. Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verse number 12. The idea is that sin separates us both in the sense of salvation and in the sense of just a relationship with God or, or walking with God. Ephesians chapter 2, if you look at verse 12, the Bible says this, that at the time ye were without Christ, uh, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers, the word strangers there means like a foreigner uh, from the covenant of promises, he says, having no hope, I want you to make note of those words, no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off. See, he says, you, you used to be far off, he says, are made nigh. The word nigh means you're brought close by the blood of Christ. See, sin separates us from God. Sin is what, and, and, and when we say sin separates us, we're not talking about physically. Obviously, God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere at once. And we're actually going to look at that here in a minute. But when it comes to our relationship with God, it is sin that, that separates us, and it is the blood of Christ that allows us to draw nigh unto God. Notice there verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometime were far off. He said you used to be far off. He said you used to be separated are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, the reason I want to make, make, make a point of that is because a lot of people today, and go with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number 14 is the last book in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 14. Today, there are people that will take this passage in Isaiah uh, 59 and verse number 2 there where he says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. They will take that passage to try to teach that, uh, you know, when, you, when, when an unbeliever dies and goes to hell, that they are separated from God. And you've got to understand, it, it, it obviously, very clearly, is not teaching that hell is separation from God. Today there are many who say, oh, the, the worst part of hell is that you're separated from God or that God is not in hell. But you've got to understand, hell is not a separation from God. In fact, the Bible never teaches that. The Bible only teaches that sin separates us from God in the sense that we cannot have a relationship with Him. We cannot come to Him as our God or as our Father. But the Bible teaches that God is in hell. Revelation chapter 14. Look at verse number 9. Now, Revelation 14 is talking about those who take the mark of the beast at the end times. And in Revelation 14 verse 9, the Bible says this, And the third angel 
followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark, the mark of the beast, 666, in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire. This is how God describes hell. He says, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Notice, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, we know that the Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, John saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And today, it's kind of like what we were talking about this 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 morning. Uh, the, the idea is, and, and the agenda that Satan puts out there, is, is people, you know, those who believe that God is real, and those who believe that Satan is real, want to believe that, oh, well, Satan can't hurt us, because he's down in hell. And people get this idea that, like, Satan is the one who's running the show in hell, and he's kind of down there with a pitchfork, and he's, you know, poking people and, and laughing, and he's, he's kind of in charge of tormenting people in hell. But you've got to understand, the Bible does not teach that at all. In fact, the Bible teaches that Satan has never even been to hell. And one day, when he gets thrown into hell, and when he gets thrown into the lake of fire, he will not be running the show. He will be tormented like everyone else. And in fact, the Bible teaches that it is God, the holy angels and the Lamb who are running the show in hell. And they are the ones that are casting out the wrath and the fury and the torment. It is Jesus Christ who is running hell. And the Bible says that He is there. Look at verse 10 again. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of His indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment attended up forever and ever. That's how long hell lasts for. Jehovah's Witness try to tell you that, you know, someone just goes to the lake of fire and they get burnt up and then they don't exist anymore. But the Bible says it lasts forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, nor worship the beast, uh, who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. It is Jesus. It is the Lamb. It is the holy angels that are running the show down in hell. Go, go with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 139. If you open up your Bible, just right in the center, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. And go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is a great psalm that teaches this doctrine of the omnipresence of God. And, uh, and what that means is, the word omni means everywhere, and that he is present everywhere at once. Psalm 139 and verse number 7. Psalm 139 and verse 7. The Bible says this, Whither, whither shall I go from thy spirit? The psalmist is asking the question. He said, he said, where? He said, where can I go to get away from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? He said, where can I go to get away from the presence of God? And notice what he says, verse 8. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. Now we understand that, and most people would agree with that. He says, if I, if I go to heaven, you know, thou art there. But notice what he says. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. See, the Bible teaches that God is everywhere. God is in heaven. God is in hell. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. If, he says, if, I, if I was able to just go out to just the middle of the ocean, the middle of the sea. Verse 10, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall 
hold me. So you gotta understand, hell is not separation from God. Because if I if if I make if I go to heaven, the Bible says that God is there. If I if I uh, go down to hell, behold, thou art there. And in fact, the Bible tells us in Revelation that it is the Lamb of God and it is the holy angels of God that are tormenting and administering the wrath of God being poured out in hell. So it's not that hell separates us from God, but sin separates us from God in a relational sense, not in a physical sense. You cannot run from the presence of God. The Bible says that his eyes are everywhere. He sees uh, everything that that we do. And and if you go back to verse number one there of Isaiah 59, notice what he says. Isaiah 59, verse one. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Again, the problem is not God. The problem is you and I. When it comes to salvation, sin separates us from God. But even as believers, sin can separate us from God and it can cause there to be a lack of a relationship. Not that you lose your salvation, not that you're not within the presence of God and not that you don't have the the Holy Spirit of God, but that relationship can be hindered because of our sin. Look at verse 3. Isaiah 59 and verse 3. Now in verse 3, from verses 3 to verse uh, number 8, is actually quoted by the Apostle Paul uh, in the book of Romans. So I want you to keep your finger there in Isaiah 59 and go with me to the book of Romans, and we're going to flip back and forth just to give you the, the, the different quotes here so you can uh, see how they're quoted uh, in the New Testament. Isaiah 59 and verse 3. So I want you to have a finger in Isaiah 59, and then I want you to have a finger in Romans chapter number 3. We're going to begin reading in Isaiah 59 verse 3, and we're going to be, begin reading in Romans chapter 3 in verse number uh, 13. So, you know, so don't, and again, I'm not saying that people who say this, you know, people hear those type of things and, and they repeat them. I'm not mad at anybody who says that. But don't go around telling people, you know, hell is separation from God. Hell is not separation from God. God is everywhere. Uh, now, sin separates us from God in the sense that there's a, we were, we were afar off and we can, be, we can draw nigh through the blood of Christ, but God is everywhere at once. Isaiah 59 Look at verse number three, okay? Now, do you have your finger there in Isaiah 59? And then, uh, and then go to Romans chapter number three, and we're going to flip back and forth. I want you to notice this. Verse three says of Isaiah 59, verse three, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Now, I want you to make note of these, these phrases, okay? Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and, make note of this, speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. So there's an emphasis here in verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 59 in the fact that their lips have spoken lies, their tongue has muttered perverseness, and they speak lies. They do not tell the truth. Now, flip over to Romans chapter 3 and look at verse number 13. Notice how... Uh, there's, there's a similarity here, and the quotation doesn't begin here, but he already begins to make similarities, so I just want to show it to you. Romans chapter number 3, and look at verse 13. The Bible says this, Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used to see. Do you see that? So in, in Isaiah 59, 3 and 4, he begins to talk about the fact that people are using their lips and their mouth to lie and, and to, to say things that are not true. And there in Romans three thirteen, he says their tongues have they used in deceit. Go back to Isaiah 59. We're going to just flip back and forth for a minute, but I want you to see this. 
First, there's just similarities, and then there's a complete quote that I want you to notice. Look at verse 5, Isaiah 59 and verse 5. He says this, they hatch cockatrices' eggs. Now, cockatrice is just an older word for a serpent, and weave the spider's web. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Now, a viper is, again, a venomous snake, just different words uh, for, for snakes here. So he's referring to these uh, cockatrice, and he refers to a viper. Flip back to Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Notice what he says. Romans chapter 3, verse 13. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used to see. The poison of asps is under their lips. You see that? Now an asp, again, is a poisonous snake. So you've got these similarities, both talking about the fact that they're lying, that they're using their mouth to, to, to say deceit, and then also talking about the fact that they're you know, making this idea, this connection between uh, different types of snakes. Now, here's where the, the quote actually begins. I want you to pay attention. Isaiah 59, verse 7. Notice what it says. Their feet run to evil and make haste to shed innocent blood. Their feet run to evil and make haste to shed innocent blood. Now go go back to Romans chapter 3 and look at verse 15. Notice verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Do you see that? Now the Apostle Paul is quoting Isaiah 59. So Isaiah 59, 7 says, Their feet run to evil and make haste to shed innocent blood. Paul quoted that in Romans 3.15 as, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Go back to Isaiah 59. Look at verse 7. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting, and notice the last phrase in verse number 7. Destruction are in their path. Do you see that? Destruction are in their path. Go back to Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 16. Notice what he says. Romans chapter 3, verse 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Okay, so in Isaiah he said they're in their paths. In Romans 3, 16 he says they are in their uh, ways. And I'm not going to have you turn to it, but if you want to just jot this down, this is also quoted in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 16, I'll just read it for you. says, for their feet run to evil and make haste uh, to shed blood. Now, go back to Isaiah 59 and look at verse number 8. I'm just showing you these quotes. You can have them for your cross-references and you can study out of them or... I just know that those are quotes there from the Old Testament. Isaiah 59, look at verse 8. The way of peace they know not. Isaiah 59 and verse 8. Now go to Romans 3 and verse 17. Notice what he says. Romans 3, 17. And the way of peace have they not known. So he's, he's quoting these passages. Now, why is, you know, you say, why, why does that matter? Why is it important? Here's, here's why. The, the, the New Testament is meant to reveal or, or, or to clarify, in many ways, the Old Testament. So when Paul quotes Isaiah 59, we can sometimes see what Paul was trying to say, and that helps us understand Isaiah 59. Now, if, you, if you're there in Romans chapter 3, I want you to get the context, okay? So the quote ends there in Romans 3.17. But notice what he says, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Romans 3.18. Now we know that what uh, things soever the law saith is saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. Now, what is the purpose of the law, or at least one of the purposes of the law? One of the purposes of the law is that every mouth may be stopped, and all that would and and all the world may become guilty before God. See, the Bible says that the law was given as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Because when we look at the law and we compare ourselves to the law, we realize we've broken. God's law. We realize that we are sinners, that we are in need, and, and it makes us guilty. 
we, we become guilty before God that every mouth may be stopped. We have nothing to say. We cannot say, we cannot approach God and, and, and have an excuse or have a reason as to why he should let us into heaven. The purpose of the law is to stop us in our tracks and make us guilty before God. Look at verse 20, Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of... Okay, the word deeds, just another word for works. He says, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We know sin because of the law. And by the way, the only reason that you know anyone believes that uh, murder is, is bad, is a sin, or something shouldn't be done, is because God told us it's a sin. Because God said, thou shalt not kill. Because God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Because God said, thou shalt not bear false witness. If evolution is, is true, and there is no God, then there's no one to tell us what's right or wrong. And, and, and that's why a bunch of kids are running around killing each other, doing all these things that they're doing, because there's no absolute standard. There's no moral standard. But it is God's law that tells us what's right. It is God's law that tells us what's wrong. It is God's law that makes us guilty, that stops us in our tracks, that allows us to see that by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God is without the law. Okay, now, now notice what he said. He says, the law tells you that you don't do enough good things to get saved. The law only makes you guilty. The law only stops you from being able to have an excuse. And then he says, but now the righteousness of God without the law. He says, if you're going to be righteous, it's without the law, is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. And that's what salvation is. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the, that's the point of this passage. Now, now let, let, we, we started at the quote there, but let's just go a little bit before the quote, just so you get the complete package. Oftentimes, I'll be out soul winning with someone, and, and sometimes, not all the time, but every once in a while, someone will be real adamant about the fact, you know, I'll ask them, do you know for sure if you died today, would you go to heaven? And they'll say, well, I, I think I'm going to go to heaven. And I'll ask them, well, what are you trusting in to get you to heaven? Or what gives you that confidence? And they'll say, well, I'm just a real good person. I just try to be a good person. I try to live a good life, and I think that will get me into heaven. I'll sometimes take him here to Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 10. It says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And I show that to everyone that I give the gospel to, but I'll keep reading verses 11 and 12 for someone who will give me that answer. It says, There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. Now, I want you to notice what it says. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. It doesn't say that there are few that do good. It doesn't say that there are some that do good. He says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. See, the purpose of Isaiah 59 where God kind of goes through that whole thing of the different you know, sins that people are involved in. And he starts with lying. You know, that's a go always a good sin to start in because that's a sin that, number one, every single one of us has done. I mean, we haven't all killed. Hopefully, if you have, you know, don't let me know. But, you know, we, we've not all killed or we've not all, you know, robbed a bank. But every single one of us has lied. And he starts with that sin because he, and, and the point that he's making is that there's none righteous. There's no one who's perfect. We are all sinners. He says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He says, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. That's why sometimes people will say to me, why do bad things happen to good people? And I'll say, what good people? <laughs> there's none that doeth good is what the Bible says. 
There's not, and here's the point. Go back to Isaiah 59, because notice what he says. Look at verse number 6. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. He says, you're not going to cover yourself with your works. You're not going to cover yourself with the things that you do. Their works are works of iniquity. The act of violence is in their hands. See, the problem with this idea that's out there with so many religions, that salvation is by works, that we've got to earn our way to heaven, that we've got to do enough good things, and, and they'll hide it. I mean, some people are just, you know, it's good works. You got to get catechized, you have to get baptized, you got to go to confessional booth. But, but others will try to hide it. They'll say, well, no, it's, not, it's by faith, it's, th- it, it, it's, it's through grace, it, it's all those things. But you have to live a good life, or you have to repent of your sins, or you have to feel sorry. But here's the thing if you have to do any of those things, then it's by works. And here's the problem with a works salvation is that there are no good works that any of us do. I mean, before salvation, anything good that comes from us is because of God. And, and here's the thing, and I'll often give people this, this illustration when I'm out sewing. I'll say, imagine that I steal a car. And, you know, I part it out. I sell it. You know, I get Brother Vladi involved, and he helps me part the whole thing out and send it everywhere. Because he's got contacts that I don't, you know what I mean? And it's gone. And then I get arrested. And, and, and they take me out to, to the courthouse. You think if I stand before the judge and I say, listen, judge. I feel so bad about what I did. I repent of what I did. You know, if you let me go, if, if you just forgive me, I, I'm never going to steal cars again. I'm going to live a good life from now on. I'm going to help little old ladies cross the street. I mean, I, I, I will never do anything bad again. You think the judge is going to say to me, you're free to go? Well, no, the answer is no. You know why? Because I've already broken the law. And that's the point that he's trying to make. Today people think, well, I'll just start going to church and I'll just start living a good life and I'll go get baptized and I'll go repent of my sins and I'll start putting money in the offering plate and I'll show up for a Sunday night service and I'll do these things. And here's the thing, all those things are good things. We want you to do those things. But there's not enough good works to make up for the fact that you're already a sinner. See, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Excuse me, the standard is not me. If I was the standard, you compared to me are a very good person. And if I was a standard for heaven, I'm sure you would all make it. But the standard is God. And when we compare ourselves to God, and when we compare ourselves to God's law, we all come short. And that's the point that he's trying to make. The problem is sin. The, the issue is the amount of sin. You cannot make up for the sins you've already committed. You need someone to take The sins from you. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. But look at verse 9. Just real quickly. Isaiah 59. Look at verse 9. In verses 9 through 13, I'm going to make some comments of some of these verses here. But I just want you to notice. He paints a description of a life of sin. Of a life without Christ. Remember in Ephesians there, he said, when we were without hope. He makes a description here of a life without hope. And especially you young people, I want you to just listen to this description that Isaiah gives us. And, and, and just ask yourself, is this the way you want to live your life? Because notice what he says in verse 9. He says, Therefore is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We, notice what he says. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. Now the word behold means you look at. He says, we wait for light, but all we see is obscurity. For brightness, he says, we wait for brightness, but we walk in darkness. Look at verse 10. We grope for the wall like the blind. And we grope 
as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. He said, it doesn't matter if the light's out. It doesn't matter if the sun's out. It doesn't matter if it's noon. I, I, I'm trying to see light, but all I see is obscurity. I'm trying to see light, but all I see is darkness. He said, it's like I'm blind. He said, it's like I have no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none for salvation. But it is far from us. Look at verse 13. In transgressions and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppressions and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And here's what he's saying. A life without God, it's like you're just groping at the wall. Like you can't, you can't see. And spiritually, he's saying, he's saying, it's like we have no eyes. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's noon. It doesn't matter if it's middle of the day. It's just, it's just like it's darkness. It's just like we're groping. And I see people out in the world, and they look at us and think, well, you guys are crazy. You know, they look at us and they say, your, your life is so terrible. You know, you're under all that bondage. You got to go to church and you try to follow all those things. And I, and I look at these people out at the world and they're like blind men just groping at the wall, just stumbling through life. No purpose, no hope. And I, and I got to ask, you know, it's just another barn. It's just another Friday night. It's just another beer. It's just another needle. It's just another baby born out of wedlock. It's just another marriage. I mean, it's just another bottle. It's just another one-night stand. It's just a, a, another, you know, and, and, and you look at these people and you say, is that really going to make you happy? Just one more nightstand. Is that really going to make you happy? Just one more fix. Just one more, you know, rendezvous. Just, just one more. Is it really going to make, and, it's, and I look at them and I think, you're like blind people. You just have no vision, no purpose, no hope. And it's sad. That these people live their lives and waste their lives. And hopefully one day they get saved and they go from darkness to light. And they see the truth. And they see the, the time that's been wasted. But it, it, it's a description of hopelessness and sinfulness. Look at verse, look, look, look at verse 4 just real quickly. Because notice what they said in verse 4. It says, none calleth for justice. So they see people that are being wronged, but they don't call for justice themselves. They don't say, hey, time out. Let's, let's fix this. This isn't right. He says, none calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. He said, he said, no one's calling for justice. No one's pleading for truth. But notice what happens as a result. Verse 9. Skip down to verse 9. Notice what it says. Therefore is judgment far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. In, in verse 4 it says that they did not call for justice that they did not plea for truth. And in verse 9, we're told, therefore is judgment far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity, for brightness, but we walk in darkness. Look at verse 14. And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the streets, and equity cannot enter. And there's this idea, and I want you to go, go with me to the book of Galatians. I don't know if you kept your place in Ephesians. I meant to tell you to keep your place there. I don't remember if I did, but if you can find Ephesians, uh, just right uh, before Ephesians, you got the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. And here's what he's teaching. He says, you didn't call for justice. He said, you didn't call, uh, you did not plead for truth. And then he says, judgment is far from you. And, and justice doesn't overtake you. And there's this idea in the Bible that if you, the way you treat others is the way that you will be treated because the Bible teaches that you reap 
what you sow. Are you there in Galatians chapter 6? Look at verse 7. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Notice what it says. Be not deceived. Don't be fooled. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. See, people say, people will look at someone and say, well, they, they just, it seems like they can get away with whatever. They just do all these things and they're just sinning against God. They're just living openly against God. And, and it's almost like they're mocking at God. But God says, hey, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Notice, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. See, you will reap what you sow eventually. And that can be a very frightening verse or it can be a very encouraging verse. That we don't have to be deceived. Sometimes you, you sacrifice and you, and you do right. You know, you, you do all those things that you're supposed to. And you, you, you make sacrifices. And maybe you, you change the way you used to do your family. And now you structure it in a way that's, that's, that's more the, the way God wants you to do it. Or, or, or you begin to, to, to give of your time, you know, to see people saved. Or you begin to give of your money to, to see the ministry of God go on. And, and, and you think to yourself, man, you know, I look at my neighbor. I look at my friend. They, their wife is working, you know. And they don't tithe. And they go, you know. Know, they take their boat out on the weekend and they do this and they do that. And, and, and am I just a fool? But be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Look at verse 8. For the, he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. So you can sow to the flesh, but all you're going to get from the flesh is things that corrupt, things that don't last, things that are temporary. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now that verse isn't teaching that you've got to sow to get life everlasting, but the idea is this. Often when we sow in the Spirit, what we will reap will be in our everlasting life in heaven. We may not see the rewards here on earth, but we'll see them up there. So what does he say? Verse 9. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. He says, you just keep doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. You just stay at it. Don't get weary. Don't get tired in well-doing. Because in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. And by the way, when you reap, when you, when you sow and you reap, you always sow more than you reap. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read this for you. Hosea 8, 7 says this, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. And that's how farming is. You plant one seed down, right? And you grow, you grow a plant, you grow a tree, and that tree produces multiple seed. And, and the idea is, no matter what you sow, you're going to reap a lot more. You sow the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. And he says, hey, don't be deceived. Because here, these people did not call for justice, they did not plead for truth, and then when they needed justice, it wasn't around. Judgment is turned backwards. Justice standeth afar off. Equity cannot enter. Because you reap what you sow, so let us not be weary in well-doing. That's why we ought to show grace and love to people. That's why we ought to be patient with people. That's why we ought to be forgiving with people, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Why? Because what, you know why I try to show mercy to people and love to people and patience to people? Is it because they deserve it? No. Because <laughs> in my flesh, I'd much rather just get mad and angry and upset. But here's what I always think to myself. One day I'll need mercy. And one day I'll need grace. One day I'll need someone to be patient with me and someone to be merciful to me and someone to show love to me when I don't deserve it. And I, and I just think to myself, I'm just going to go ahead and, and sow some grace here so that I can reap some grace later. I'm going to sow some love here so I can reap some love later. I, I, I'm going to sow some patience and some mercy here so I can reap it. That's why he says, let us not be weary in well-doing. Don't get tired of well-doing. Don't get burnt out in well-doing for in due season... We shall reap if we faint not. Go back to Isaiah 59, look at verse 15. 
Isaiah 59, verse 15. Verse 15, to me, it's a description of Old Testament Judah there when Isaiah is ministering to them. But I think it's a fitting description of the United States of America. Isaiah 59, 15 says, Yea, truth faileth. Isn't that the truth? That in our country, truth faileth. I mean, you can't get truth. You go down to the average church, you don't get truth. You get entertainment. You get stories. You get a rock concert and some funny jokes, but you don't get truth. You try, you try to get, you know, one of the reasons I'm, I'm not that interested in these politicians, you know, and, and, look, and, you know, once we get closer, I'm sure I'll start paying a little more attention. But, one, you know, people say, well, did you hear what the president say? It doesn't matter what he says. He's a liar. They all are. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. Look, you know that a politician is lying to you if his mouth is open. I mean, they're, they're all liars. Truth, truth faileth in America today. You can't get it in the media. You can't get it from the politicians. You can't get it from the average pastor. You can only get it from the Word of God. The only source of truth is the Bible. Truth faileth. Notice what it says. And he that departeth from evil... Make themselves a prey. Isn't that a description of America today? Because a prey is, a, a, is, is someone who is victimized by a predator. Here's what he says. When someone departs from evil, when someone says, you know what? I'm not going to go to that bar. I'm not going to drink that alcohol. I'm not going to get high with you. I'm not going to celebrate, you know, the occult. I'm not going to, you know, abstain from these things. As soon as you depart from evil, people start attacking you. People start... You know, you become a prey. No, he that departed from evil make himself a prey. And that, that's, that's the world we live in today. The godlier you try to live, the more righteous you try to live, people will attack you more. They'll get mad. They were happy when you were a drug addict. They were happy when you were a drunk. They were happy when your marriage was failing. Now that your marriage is good, now that you're happy, now that you have joy, now that you have contentment, now that you're safe, now that you're walking for God, they don't like that. They liked it when you were failing. But he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. That's what the Bible says. And that's the truth. People start, they start attacking you. Your family turns against you when you start living for God. Look at verse 16. And he saw that there was no man. Now, this is God. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. God looked down from heaven and he said, is there someone that can help these people? And the Bible says he saw there was no man. And he wondered at it. He, he was uh, amazed at it. He was astonished that there was no intercessor, not even someone praying on the behalf of the people. And I, I love verse 16. Therefore, because he looked down and saw that there was no man. Because he looked down and he saw that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. And his righteousness, it sustained him. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just real quickly, you can go towards the, the T books in the New Testament. you got 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here's what Isaiah 59 is saying. God looked down from heaven. He saw that there was no man. He saw that there was no intercessor. He saw that there was no one to help. So then the Bible says, therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. God looked down and said, there's no one to help these people. So he said, I'll do it myself. 1 Timothy 3.16, notice what it says. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God, God was manifest in the flesh. 
justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. See, God looked down and said, that he, he wondered at the fact that there was no intercessor. He looked down and he saw there was no man. And, and, and the Bible says, therefore his arm brought salvation unto him. God said, all go down. All become a man. God was manifest in the flesh and he came and did it himself. Isn't that a good God? It's a great God that would say, you know what? I will humble myself. You're there in 1 Timothy 3. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Since you're there, let's just look at it. Who will have all men to be saved. That's God's will, that all men would be saved. Will, will, talking about his will for the world. Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. See, it is Christ. And today, you got the, the, the cults out there saying, well, Jesus, he wasn't God. He was just a prophet. He was just a good man. He just had a good message. No, he was more than just a man. He was God in the flesh. God manifest in the flesh. Uh, go back to Isaiah 59. Look at verse 17. We'll, we'll just uh, go through a, few more, a couple more of these verses, and, and we'll finish up. Look at verse 17. Isaiah 59, verse 17. Now, in Isaiah 59, verse 17, it's really interesting. Because he begins to talk about what we refer to as the armor of God. In Isaiah 59, look at verse 17. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Now keep your finger there in Isaiah 59. Go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter number 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now we were in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 this morning. And we'll go ahead and read that tonight, but we'll keep reading down to verse number 17. Ephesians chapter 6 is a really famous passage about what's known as the armor of God. But what Isaiah 59 tells us is that he, talking about God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation. See, it's called the armor of God because it's God's armor. God actually wears the armor himself. And then he gives us the access to that same armor because God is a great leader. He doesn't send you off into war and stay behind. He puts on the armor and goes out before us. He goes out before us. He goes out with us. He goes out behind us. And that's what we were talking about, the omnipresence of God. Are you there in Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 12? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, verse 14, having your loins girt about with truth, and, notice verse 14, notice this phrase, having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now go back to, keep your finger there, go back to Isaiah 59, look at verse 17. Isaiah 59, verse 17, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate. Do you see that? Paul is getting part of this armor from Isaiah. God put on righteousness as, as a breastplate. And then Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 14, having on the breastplate of righteousness. Go back to Isaiah, uh, uh, Ephesians 6, 15. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of, of the wicked, verse 17, and take, notice this, and take the helmet of salvation. Do you see that? Uh, Ephesians 6, 17. And take the helmet of salvation. Go back to Isaiah 59. Look at verse 17. Isaiah 59, verse 17. Notice what he says. Isaiah 59, verse 17. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation. Do you see that? 
See, it's the armor of God. We put on that armor, but it is God's armor. God wears the armor and then allows us the privilege of wearing it alongside with him. Now, what's interesting is that in, in Ephes- and there's other passages that talk about the armor of God, and he gets some of those uh, from there. But what's interesting about the passage in Isaiah 59 is that there are, are, are two things mentioned that are part of the armor of God in regards to God wearing it that Paul does not mention in regards to us wearing it in the book of Ephesians. Let me show you this. Go back, show you those. Go back to Isaiah 59. Look at verse 17. Isaiah 59, look at verse 17. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, we saw that in Ephesians 6, and in helmet of salvation upon his head, we saw that. But I want you to notice what we didn't see. And he put on the garment of vengeance. You see that? Now the garment of vengeance is not found in our armor. He put on the garment of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. That clad with zeal as a cloak is also not found in Ephesians 6 in regards to our armor. Now, you may ask, well, why, why is that armor not given to us? Now, because I want you to notice, clad with zeal as a cloak and the garment of vengeance. Now, if you look at verse 18 in Isaiah 59, he talks about vengeance. Notice, according to their deeds... Accordingly, he will repay. And that's what vengeance is. Based on what they did, that's how he's going to repay them. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands, he will repay recompense. So he says, he, 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 says, he puts on the garment of vengeance, then he goes and he recompenses his enemies. He repays them according to their deeds. Now, why does he not tell us that we have the garment of vengeance. Here's why. Because you and I would abuse it. Because we would be avenging ourselves of everyone. And the thing is this, that vengeance belongs to God. Go to Romans chapter 12 real quickly. We'll finish up. Romans chapter 12. Look at verse number 18. Romans chapter number 12. See, the reason that that, uh, uh, the garment of vengeance is not given to us is because that vengeance is something that only God does. You and I are not supposed to have vengeance. We're not supposed to take revenge. We're not supposed to repay people for their bad deeds. It is God that repays the wicked and the sinner and, and that, the one that does wrong. It is God's job to do that, so that's in His armor, not ours. Are you there in Romans chapter 12? Look at verse 18. Notice what the Apostle Paul said under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, of course. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Now look, we should be trying to live peaceably with all men. Now he says, if it be possible, as much as life with you, because sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes we cannot lie peaceably with men. Sometimes people fight us, and it's not us looking for a fight, but they attack us, either physically or spiritually or whatever it might be, and, and, and we're not able to. And God understands this. He says, if it, if it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. But you know, the problem is that most of us independent fundamental Baptists are going around trying to pick a bunch of fights all the time. Trying to, you know, fight with people when the Bible says we should do everything we can, if at all possible, to live peaceably with all men, as much as lieth in you. Look at verse 19. 
dearly beloved. So he says, he says with that context, that we are to live in peace, that we are to, to, to do it as much as possible. Verse 19, Dear belo- dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. He says, don't take revenge. Somebody wrongs you, don't take revenge. Don't even the score. Don't say, well, I'm going to take this opportunity now, and I'm going to show them. He says, dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. See, vengeance belongs to God. And we've got to understand this. We've got to get to the place where if we really do believe in a God, and we really do believe that there is a God in heaven that, 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 that is going to take vengeance on our part, then we've got to be okay with that and realize when people wrong us, when people lie about us, when people criticize us, when people attack us unduly, when we haven't hurt them or we haven't done anything against them, and yet they take it out on us, we've got to be okay with the fact that there is a God in heaven. That will one day even the score. And it's not my job to revenge or avenge or even the score or stand up for myself. Because notice, the Bible says here, verse number 20, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil. The word evil means to hurt. He says, don't get overcome with this idea of hurting people and getting back at people. He says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. But see, the only way that we can love our enemies, the only way that we can feed our enemy when they hunger and, and give drink to our enemy when they thirst, the only way we can do that is if we are confident in the fact that there is a God who will repay, who will stand up for us, who will avenge us, who won't even the score, and we don't have to. Because, see, the garment of vengeance, I believe, was purposely not added in Ephesians chapter 6 when it talks about our armor. Because vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. It is God who gives vengeance, and it is His armor uh, to do so. Let's bow our heads and have...